a month. Uh, we had a little deviation for Palm Sunday and then for Easter Sunday. And then we looked at the subject of baptism. I joked about it, but we've had a lot of those lately and wanted to think together as a church, what does God's Word say about baptism? And then I was out last week. I think Tim did uh, use, use uh, the Gospel of John and Luke. But we want to return to the, the series we've been developing as we wrap up for the spring. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 33. And as, as you're looking there, something to think about. When I do the foundations class... And that's a class that we offer semi-regularly. This is, uh, other churches might call it an inquirer's class. This is just who, who we are, what we're about, what we're shooting for as a church, what membership looks like. And one thing we talk about in, in the foundations class is that as a church, we want to understand that we are not this new thing that just sprung on the scene in, uh, in downtown Greenville. But to be a church is to be part of something that is global, and it's 2,000 years old. And there's a lot of ways that manifests itself, but one way that it manifests itself are ancient creeds. And uh, churches, I mean, Eastern Orthodox churches, Roman Catholic churches, Protestant churches that are historically Christian churches use two creeds that really bind us together. One is the Apostles' Creed, And the other is the Nicene Creed. And and our church holds to both those creeds. And I thought about this as I was getting ready for this passage. that They're they're based around the Trinity. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are structured around Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're mostly about what do we believe about God. But there are two mortals that are mentioned in both creeds. You know who they are? There are two mortals in both creeds. One is Mary. The other is Pontius Pilate. That's amazing. That the t- I mean, of all the millions and millions and millions of people who've lived and all the people that show up in the Scriptures, the two that are mentioned are Mary and Pontius Pilate. This text that we're about to look at is a historic meeting. This is an exchange between Jesus Christ and Pontius Pilate. And now John goes further with this exchange. We're just going to look at this part. But I want you to think about this. This exchange highlights one of the most important terms in the Bible. Now listen for it. John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. And called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world 
to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to you this morning, assemble together, some of us are ready to hear and we're interested. Some of us are swimming in preoccupation right now. Some of us are skeptical. Some of us do not resonate with anything that's been sung or said this morning. Would you dig out ears for us to hear? And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. A friend of mine who is a a minister uh, from my hometown told me about a conversation that a fraternity brother had, and um, and this fraternity brother recounted this for my for my friend who recounted it to me. This guy was talking about when he was in either late high school or early college, I can't remember, but he was back home in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, where I'm from, and he was having lunch with his dad at a club, and it, this club would be Jackson's version of the Commerce Club in Greenville, at the top of the building, overlooks downtown, it's the kind of place you have rehearsal dinners and things like that. Well, he's there during lunch on a weekday, and his dad looks across the table and says, now son, look around the room. Okay, do you see that guy over there? That guy is the president of such and such alumni association. Do you see that guy over there? He is the president of such and such bank. Uh, Do you see that guy over there? He directs this club. Do you see that guy over there? He is five times wealthier than anybody knows. I know, but no one else knows. And and this is amazing because this is a thing that is not often verbalized. It's just in the water. It's just, it's kind of implicit. But this guy's dad explicitly said, Son, you need to understand that if you are going to go places, you are going to have to make these connections. Now, here's what I want you to think about. When that man was having that conversation with his son, he was, in a way, discipling him. And it's the proverb that Christians quote a lot about, about parenting, and it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we tend to apply that, okay, so train them up to know God and know the Bible and love Jesus, and then when they're old, they won't depart from it. But the proverb seems to work, period. Train up a child in the way he he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. He was training him up in the rules and the terms of the world. Meaning well. Now, I want you to think about this. 
there is this term that we might not use that often, but it is a huge deal in the Bible. And in the New Testament, it's not just an aspect of the good news, the gospel. It's not, it's not an exaggeration to say it is equated with the gospel itself. And the term is the kingdom. I think just one example, we could quote a truckload of verses about this. One example, the book of Acts comes right after the Gospels. This is how you grow from this little band of Jesus' disciples to the thing that is becoming a global reality. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. I mean, almost the very beginning of the book says that between Jesus' resurrection and His ascension, it's a 40-day period, and He appeared to all these people. And it says, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that during those 40 days, He talked with all these people about what? The kingdom of God. And then you go all the way to the last verse of Acts. All these things have happened. And the book closes with the Apostle Paul under house arrest in Rome. And what's the last thing it says? He's under house arrest in Rome, and he was there in Rome for two years, and he spoke to anybody he could about the kingdom of God. In the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, you've got two kingdoms. You've got the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And this term, the world, the world is almost like a character in the Gospel of John. If you look up, uh, there's, a, there's a Bible study resource called a concordance. You can look up every single word that's in the Bible. This is not like bedside reading. This is a, a tool for, for study. If you look up the word world, John uses the word world, or he quotes Jesus using it exponentially more than all the other Gospels. The world, the world, the world. There is a kingdom of the world. Not so much planet Earth, but it's a system. It's a system of not needing God, of being your own Savior, or simply rejecting the claim that you need one. It operates by merit. It prioritizes money, appearance, place, strength. It's a meritocracy. And there is this other kingdom, and it is the kingdom of God Himself, Here's what that means. God is already king over everything. He did not run for it. He doesn't, you know, sort of climb up the ladder and then, whew, finally get to the top. Now I'm king. Always been absolute sovereign over everything. So what does it mean for the kingdom to come or to be brought into the kingdom? What it means is this. One day, guys, one day, Everything on earth and everything in the universe, it's going to be visibly, very obviously manifested that Jesus rules over all. Now, when that happens, He won't be any more ruler than He is right now. But we live in a time where His rule is not fully manifested. You can't see it yet. But where you find someone owning Him as king and loving Him, and responding to Him, the Scripture says that is the kingdom coming in. 
That's the kingdom manifesting itself, bursting into, taking over the kingdom of the world. It can be in one human heart or in a whole nation. It could be over an entire plot of ground. It could be one small garden. The kingdom. Now, what I want to look at this morning is, how do you see the contrast of these two kingdoms in this exchange? This is an amazing exchange between the second person of the Trinity and a very powerful Roman official. Uh, Two things. One, just look at the contrast... How do the two kingdoms operate? What do they prioritize? And then second, what is Christ's kingdom like? What's the nature of Christ's kingdom? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the first one, but look at the contrast. This is early on the day in which Jesus was crucified. Just for context, we've been away from this for about a month. And the chief priests and the Jewish leaders have brought Jesus to Pilate. Now, this is... This is tricky. You need to see that those who were opposed to Jesus, they had a real dilemma, and they came up with a brilliant solution. It really was brilliant. They could not execute someone under certain terms. They had to get Rome to do it. But they couldn't come to Rome and say, this guy claims to be the Messiah. Rome had no dog in that fight. That's a theological squabble. You guys work that out. We're running an empire. So what they did was they came with charges of, he claims to be another king. Now that made it political. Because that would be sedition. That would be a threat to the empire. That was a chargeable offense. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate with the charge, he claims to be another king. Isn't Tiberius the Caesar? Isn't he the king over everybody? But he claims to be the king of the Jews. They are, set, they are giving away their own identity when they say this. To say that Tiberius is our king rather than God is our king. But he claims to be the king. So Jesus is brought to Pilate. Now, we don't know exactly what they look like visibly. But just in your mind's eye, think about how it had to be. Even if we don't know exactly what was worn or exactly what the room was like, you would have Pilate, who is a man, who looks like a statesman. Military background. Military upbringing. And keep in mind, the Roman military was not, and I say this with high respect for the military now, but this was not modern warfare. You don't shoot unless it's archery or a crossbow. You don't shoot, you don't send a mortar, you don't drop a bomb. War is hand to hand. Came up, he is now a Roman Roman governor in this area. His headquarters is in Caesarea. He's here in Jerusalem probably because it's Passover. A lot of people in town could have problems. Well-fed, healthy, commands respect. This is what the world would say you want This is where you want to end up. This is an achiever. Who's the other man? What did it have to look like? Now, I want you to, to think here. Before Jesus got to this meeting with Pilate, and we neglect to talk about this sometimes, before he went to even his flogging, which was 
awful. And then after the flogging to crucifixion, which is more awful, before all that, he was roughed up bad. Have you ever been punched in the face? Most people shook their head. I'm glad. Because it is awful. And it is not like the movies where, you know, you can just take like 12 blows and then kind of go to the next scene and look incredible. You take one blow to the face, you will probably bruise a lot. You'll swell up. You'll, You'll get red. Think about this. It says that as soon as the Jewish authorities handed Jesus over to the guards, it says in the Gospel of Mark, this is a sad verse. It says they received him with blows. That Jesus is thrust to these guards, and when he comes in, wham! And they did it over and over and over So, what does Jesus look like? We don't know, but we know this. You've got an olive-skinned, peasant-looking man, probably with a bloodied tunic and a swollen face, looking at this statesman. And did you hear the conversation? The conversation, and this continues into chapter 19, Pilate is talking to him in the tone of, I hold the cards. Do you understand I hold the cards? In fact, he says in the next chapter, do you not understand that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And do you know why he is saying that to Jesus? Because Jesus stops answering any of his questions. Which is very revealing. And it's very revealing that as you look in John and you look in the other Gospels, you know what you learn about Pilate? He is the most powerful man in the area unless Caesar comes into the area. And over and over in the Gospels, it drives home that he is afraid. He is afraid of what the Jews think of him. He is afraid that the Jews will resist him. And even though he is convinced this man is innocent, he hands him over to them against his better judgment, against his wife's advice. That's another story. I hold the cards, and I'm riddled with insecurity. I'm the most powerful man in the area, and I yield to what people think of me. And you have Jesus, who is a peasant, who is weak, who owns no house. Okay, friends, Greenvillians, hear me. Jesus Christ owned no house. A man who is a peasant, born into poverty, with no house, with a bloody tunic, we would assume, and a swollen face, unintimidated. That is the contrast. That's the contrast between what Augustine would have called the city of God, and the city of man. What is the nature of Jesus' kingdom? What, what, what sort of, what's the fuel? What makes it go? What does Jesus say in verse 37? Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. 
And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is he talking about? It means this. And this is a massive theme, guys, in the New Testament. That the way reality works in God's kingdom, the way reality works in Christ's kingdom, is utterly counterintuitive. It's so counterintuitive that God has to come to us and reveal how it works, because if He doesn't, none of it will dawn on us. For instance, we already said this earlier, what, what am I protective of? What do I want to do well? I want my life to do well. I want my life to go well. And I'm going to protect my life, at least as much as I can without looking like a jerk. I'm going to protect my life so it goes well. And Jesus comes along as the king and looks at his subjects and says this, if you try to save your life, Because that's what's going to come naturally to you. If you try to protect and hedge around your life and hedge all your bets and protect your own interests, you will lose it. Then the king goes on to say this, but if you lose your life, which might mean a decades-long life of selflessness, or it might be literally lose your life, you'll find it. Now, you talk about counterintuitive. And everything in the kingdom is that way. Do you want to always have enough money? Do you want to always have enough, so much so that you don't have to worry about it? Then you must give it away. Give it away, and you'll have great treasure. If you're going to get done what you must get done... You must stop. If you would be fruitful, you must rest. If you would be saved, you cannot save yourself. Someone else must save you. If you would be saved from what you do, you must realize that there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Someone else must do for you. Everything is counterintuitive. And the way Jesus teaches is counterintuitive. He says, I came into the world to do this. And he's talking to a guy that understands real power, real authority, real imperial existence. He's, I came into the world to reveal truth. Now, if you're thinking right now, this thought might have dawned on you. I hope so, because this means you're you're doing the math. All right, if that's what his kingdom is made of, then what about people like me who don't live that way? Yeah, I mean, I get your point. Jesus says things that are counterintuitive. If you want to find your life, lose it. But, I mean, I've heard him say that, and I still protect my life. Or he says, hey, do you want to be free of anxiety about stuff? Give your stuff away. I get that, but I like my stuff. In fact, I'm renting a new storage unit. Which is bigger than the older storage unit. What do I do about that? Okay, and here's where you see the real power of the kingdom. 
Because you could look at this and think, this is just sort of a caboose on the other verses, but look in verse 38. Jesus just said, I came into this world to reveal truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? I don't use this word a lot from up front, but you know what? That, that sounds very postmodern. Yeah, I mean, you might have your story. You might have your, your narrative. But can anybody really say that they have the truth, capital T truth, that's true for everybody everywhere? And when Pilate asked Jesus that question, do you know what Jesus said? Nothing. He would not ennoble it with an answer. But then it goes on to say this. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Some translations say Barabbas was an insurrectionist. If you're going to understand what the kingdom of God is like, you need to see this. From the world's vantage point, and you kind of hear it in Pilate's voice, he's saying, Am I a Jew? I don't know why you're here. The reason you're here is because your own nation delivered you. The chief priest delivered you. How big a jerk do you have to be when the clergy are rounding you up to hand you over? They're crying out for your blood. That's why we're talking. And then finally, when Pilate comes out and says, well, I don't find, you know, at least uh, something that's a capital offense in him, nothing to execute him about. Do you want me to do this tradition we have at Passover, give you somebody else, releasing that he could be the guy that we release? And they are screaming, give us the insurrectionist. Give us the robber. And from the world's point of view, we would have to look at Jesus and say, no one has ever blown it like you have blown it. You came to save these people. And they have utterly turned on you. Somehow you have gotten Judea and Rome simultaneously hacked off at you enough to kill you. And they are going to kill you from the world's point of view. And it abject failure. It ends up being abject cosmic Victory. I mean, if we had video footage of the day Jesus was crucified, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but I want you to think about it this way. If we had video footage, you would see outside the city, not even in it, outside the city, three men on crosses, some folks gathered around it, Roman soldiers, people mocking, relatives, friends, and just sort of life going on. Not everybody could go. People had to run stores and do things. You know, there's men up there and one's in the middle. And what was going on is that God was destroying evil. He was killing death. He was undoing the curse of the fall. Here's this man, beat up, wounded, weak, impoverished, abandoned, and he is winning all the victories. Not at just an earthly level, cosmic. It says in Colossians that when God saves a man or a woman, God the Father transfers 
that man or woman out of the domain of darkness. He transfers them into the kingdom of the Son He loves. And I would ask you this this morning as we bring this to a conclusion. How do you know if you're in that kingdom? Because kingdom may not be a big term to us, but to Jesus and the apostles, it was the meat and potatoes of what this good news is all about. How do you know that you are in the kingdom? I'd say two things. Number one, do you know that the old you died and a new you was supernaturally birthed? One of the first sermons in this John series, we had Jesus talking to Nicodemus, another important guy, another religious leader, another guy that holds the cards. And Jesus says, if you're not born again, you cannot enter the kingdom. If you're not born again, you cannot even see the kingdom. Do you know that you have been born again? Or do you sometimes, maybe even right now, get this sneaky feeling that I think I'm just trying to be a more biblical old me that I've always been. You must be born again to be in this kingdom. And I would say this, if right now in your heart you are thinking, I don't know if I'm born again, that is a very good God working inside of you. And I can't think of a better thing for you to do as soon as possible is to place your empty hands before Him and say, I cannot birth myself spiritually any more than I could have birthed myself physically. Would you give me the new birth? But how else do you know that you're in the kingdom? And it's when these counterintuitive ways of living start to come into your life. It's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. It's when you begin to, it's when you stop saying, I'm blessed when I get it together. And you begin to understand that Jesus comes and says, You're blessed when you are poor in spirit. Are you spiritually chapter 11? You're blessed. Do you have nothing, no bargaining chips with God? You're blessed. That is counterintuitive, and it's true. That's kingdom truth. How do you have what you need? Is it just through managing your funds and your budget well and living within your means? That's good stuff. That's in the Bible. Jesus says, seek first, not your stuff. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and then all those things will be added to you. At the risk of sounding irreverent, sometimes it sounds like crazy talk. Now, let me end with this. Uh, I, I got to go with, uh, with some friends here at church, and maybe some of you were there, to the, the banquet for Miracle Hill, the rescue mission a block away that does other work in the area. We support them as a church. They're great. Miracle Hill uh, had a banquet Thursday night, and the speaker was a guy who's co-authored a book with a formerly homeless man the man who was speaking, named Ron, was a high, high-end art dealer in Fort Worth, Texas. And he befriends 
a man who was known in Fort Worth as the most dangerous homeless man in the city. Like other really bad homeless men who were really dangerous did not mess with this guy. And Ron's wife, who was a Christian, read this verse in Ecclesiastes 9, which I'm sure you know by heart, but in case you don't. In Ecclesiastes 9, it says that there was this poor man in a city, and through the wisdom of that poor man, the city was saved. Now, I think it's talking about something very different. But that just got in her, in her crawl. And she told her husband, I think that there is a poor man in Fort Worth that is going to end up at some level saving Fort Worth. And, you know, her husband's supportive, but I'm sure he's kind of thinking, that's just, that's bizarre. And I can't tell the whole story, but this just fierce, dangerous, homeless man, one day who cleared out an entire dining room, cafeteria, whatever, in the Fort Worth rescue mission when Ron and his wife were there and is screaming, I'm going to kill somebody. Ron's wife tried to meet him because she, she said, I think that's the man. I think that's the Ecclesiastes 9 man. And her husband's going, I don't, I don't want that to be the Ecclesiastes 9 man. <laughs> and she, she, he comes through the food line and she's, try, she's trying to meet him and he won't look at her. And so she just kind of gets up in his face and he explodes at her. And this little, you know, Fort Worth socialite jumps over the food line and puts her finger up in his face and tells him that he's important. And he, stor- he goes off. And before the story... I mean, you need to read this book. It's called Same Kind of Different as Me. Truth be told, I need to read this book. I'm being a total poser right now. I just hold it, turned the guy... All of you read the book. Do as I say, not as I do. But the end of the story, before it's all over with, not only have they all become friends, and not only does God just begin to use them in these amazing ways, but before it's all over with, this state-of-the-art, brand-new rescue mission for the homeless in Fort Worth, multi-multi-million dollar site that this woman, Ron's wife, had dreamed of is built through the friendship with this homeless man named Denver Moore. And he's named the top philanthropist in Fort Worth. And when I, the more, thinking about this, when I went home, I, I went from, that's an amazing story, to I went home to, that is a crazy story. It's a wacko story. That a man who had nothing that the world offers through the most bizarre set of circumstances, the hand of God, and gospel truth, kingdom realities. Before it's over with, he is honored by the city as in some ways the best thing that ever happened to the poor. You can drive to this homeless mission. It's that real. And Jesus would say to us this morning, you know what? It may be that I give you some money more than the average person. It may be that I give you some authority. But truth is, give your life away. Truth is that greatness is humility. Truth is the way to always have enough is send it out the door.
And the way you can know that is that I showed it to you. And I bore the punishment for how you don't do it. The kingdom of God is the true kingdom. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, help us. We live by sight, not by faith. We pray that you would enable us, oh Lord, to see what your Son has revealed. Oh God, if anyone here has not had this new birth, would you grant it? Would you put it in their heart even to cry out for it and feel their need for it and grant it? And would you enable us to live out your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.